Welcome back to The Russians. Uh, I'm Yasha Levine. Hi, I'm Yevgenia Kovda. And uh, <clears throat> today we uh, have a really uh, amazing guest for you, um, Alexei Yurchak, who's a professor at anthropology at UC Berkeley. Um, f- you know, for people who do know him, he's probably best known for his book about, um, about late Soviet society. Uh, the book's called Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More. Um, and it's about how towards the end uh, of the Soviet Union, no one really believed that the no one really believed in the Soviet system anymore or the ideology that underpinned it, and yet no one could really imagine an alternative. And people thought that it would remain in place forever. I mean, it's a really great book, and um, in it he coined this term called hypernormalization, um, a concept around which actually Adam Curtis built one of his more recent documentaries around, in which he of course called hypernormalization. Um, so uh, if you've heard the term. Uh, Alexei is, is the one who coined it in, the, in, in his book, and I highly recommend to read that book. Um, and Alexei is working on a new book uh, now uh, about the preservation and deification of Lenin's body and the secretive laboratory that has carried out this work of preserving and sort of propping up uh, Lenin <laughs> physically um, for almost a century. Uh, and so we're probably we're going to focus more on uh, this more recent work um, about Lenin that Yurchak is doing, and it's it's a really interesting line of inquiry because, uh, well, it's it seems kind of uh, obscure and, and maybe esoteric, but it's ultimately we think is very relevant to what's going on in Russia politically today, and politically and ideologically. So, um, thank you for yeah. joining us. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you. Thanks for the invitation. Did we get all everything correct? Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean. Uh, yeah, we can clarify things during the conversation. Perfect, thanks. Yeah, so Jen, do you think you want to get the get it going? Sure, yeah, let's just get right into it. Um, I discovered your um, paper. Um, I, I didn't know that you're actually now writing a book or finishing the book based on it. Your paper that's called Bodies of Lenin, the Hidden Science of Communist Sovereignty. And uh, yeah, and I found it fascinating. But I, I guess my first question would be just how, because you've been working it for, for quite a while and been interested in the subject, how did you initially get get into it, considering also how secretive the whole um, lab and the whole process is? Right. Um, so uh, I was always interested to write a history, uh, kind of a, and a political philosophy and history of the whole Soviet project and to look at it through the eyes of an anthropologist who is doing the historical work. And... Um, so my previous book, which you mentioned, Everything Was Forever Until It Was No More, The Last Soviet Generation, I looked at the late period of the Soviet Union. And the question there was um, why the collapse was so unexpected. And when it happened, it, it was so uh, retrospectively experienced as something which totally made sense to everyone. And yet, it, it, until it happened, it was unexpected. So I used that as a prism through which to look back at the last few decades of Soviet history. But I didn't look at the whole period. I looked at the period from Stalin on. Of course, there were some things which I wrote about the earlier period as well, because you cannot study a period without contrasting it with something before. There's a genealogical link between them. But um, one thing which I discovered, which I already knew to some extent, but discovered even more during writing, doing research for the book and writing it, was that the figure of Lenin occupied a very particular political place, uh, within the Soviet political system, a place which in political philosophy uh, 
can be identified as that of the sovereign. It's a place external to the actual social political world. Uh, external in the sense, at least, well, partially external, that the language of that system cannot question that figure, right? Um, no, no political speech or uh, film or piece of writing or lecture uh, book could uh, question Lenin. Lenin was, by definition, um, the kind of the locus of truth. That's the voice in which truth was articulated. And, and every publication and statement in the Soviet Union had to refer to Lenin explicitly or implicitly to legitimate itself. And um, if you think about the Soviet history as a whole, every single political leader after, after Lenin was eventually criticized by uh, the um, followers, Stalin, Khrushchev, Brezhnev, and so forth, mm-hmm. uh, and smaller ones. But Lenin could not be. And in fact, the criticism of those figures, for example, destalinization, right, when Stalin was uh, accused of this uh, crimes against humanity and uh, violation of the whole communist project, uh, they were done in the, uh, they were articulated as violations of Leninism. And uh, the party and the system managed to reinvent itself. It wouldn't collapse. It managed to reinvent itself by claiming that now it was returning to true Lenin, mm-hmm. uh, which Stalin distorted, or which Khrushchev distorted. And so, um, g- going back to what I said originally, uh, uh, th- that figure, the figure of Lenin, occupied this place which was external to the system where truth was located. And uh, so, um, I realized that uh, to write that history of the Soviet Union with that figure in mind, and mind you, I I want to quickly add um, uh, that this is not unique to the Soviet system. This um, reliance on on a certain external truth is actually a common feature of any political system. You think about the United States with its founding fathers and the Constitution. uh, There are certain truths which are taken for granted, and they Mm -hmm. cannot be questioned in political language. They have to be there before the political language can be formulated in the first place, right? It, it has to rely on something which is external to it. So, um, I mean, there are differences between these political systems, but that yeah. aspect of it is similar. So, um, Sorry, just a, a quick question regarding this Lenin as a sovereign, kind of infallible sovereign uh, figure. Um, yeah, yeah. Do, do you feel it's, I mean, it sort of became possible just because he got sick early on and ultimately didn't actually get to to rule or become one of the real general secretaries for for too long to be tarnished like everyone else in a way and uh, so just his short kind of political engagement after the revolution uh, made it possible right that he yeah he just remained somehow pure because of that i mean uh, we may say that as a kind of a hypothesis but it's not necessarily the case Uh, i would not have this kind of uh, what we may call a more cynical view of Soviet history. I think that Lenin actually was different from Stalin. Mm-hmm. And uh, in a way, you can also argue, uh, which would be a different kind of hypothesis to what you just formulated, that uh, what happened after Lenin uh, was a distortion of some of the designs which he had. Because mm-hmm. he, um, I mean, at the end of his life, he was introducing this workers and peasants commissions, which were uh, an attempt to curtailed the uh, power of the Central Committee. He was actually very critical of what was happening to the party, this 
ossification and uh, the, the, the emergence of the new nomenclatura which was happening around him in the early 20s. Mm-hmm. So you can also say that he uh, didn't want the kind of system which emerged afterwards. Mm-hmm. So in sense, his he uh, occupied that place which we just discussed, not simply because he didn't rule long enough and therefore didn't fall prey to the same fate as the other ones later on, but also probably because he was different. Well, mm-hmm. at least that's a possible line of argument. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't, we don't know for sure how this history would, would have developed, but I, I would not necessarily take a, a more cynical view. Mm-hmm. It, it just happened so that he was ill and therefore he was clear of all the things which happened to all of them automatically. I don't think it's necessarily the case. Okay. Yeah, and I guess it makes sense. I mean, because because when in your in your, in your you know in your uh, paper, uh, you know you you explain how essentially you know everything that Lenin did or, or wrote you know was always after he died or even before he died in the years uh, in a sickness when he there became kind of almost like a, a, you know an, another kind of abstract body of Lenin, right? Which is there was, they, they created out of the living Lenin who was sick, they create, started creating an artificial mythologized Lenin even before he died. And so it doesn't really matter what you did in, in, in your actually like life, you know, later on a cult of personality could be built around you and the facts about your life and deeds can be distorted and they basically were distorted, continually rewritten or censored or sort of like, uh, as you write in your paper. So, I mean, I, it makes sense that it's, I mean, I, I probably would, you know, weigh in on the, the the sense that like it's not about what you did, but how the people who follow you and are in power after you manipulate your memory, right? Um, and manipulate what you did. And yeah, yeah. Um, maybe I will go back to the first question, like how I got interested in, in the body and uh, mm-hmm. and uh, in what uh, Yasha just said into that uh, answer, which I didn't quite finish. So. Um, yeah, on, to one extent, you can say that uh, it's not about what you said, but how people manipulated it later, but not completely. I mean, uh, what Lenin uh, was used, what kind of Lenin's statement and, and uh, Lenin's ideas were used in Soviet history was not completely manipulated and constructed later. Mm-hmm. It had to be based in the real Lenin's texts. So it had to be both manipulated and at the same time, to some extent, it had to remain real. You could not completely write an imaginary book, which Lenin supposedly authored, but he never did, and Stalin just published a book which was fake Lenin. That wouldn't work. So it had to be always based on real texts. Mm-hmm. But then those texts could be quoted out of context, some uh, phraseology could be omitted, certain things could be attributed to Lenin if he co-authored it with Kamenev, for example, the second author could be erased, and so forth. So the manipulation happened, but it happened always within certain frame, right? It, it couldn't happen. Um, completely at random. <clears throat> it had always to be linked back to the real figure and to the real words. So um, that is that actually brings me back to the body because uh, what I realize is, is that, that that figure, which I said was located outside that place of the sovereign, it was a combination of real linen and constructed linen. It was never just constructed and it was never completely real. It was mm-hmm. a combination of the two. And the same is true about all the representations of Lenin in Soviet history, all the visuals. For example, all the early sculptures and uh, statues which were made in the 20s, 30s, even 40s, had to be based on Lenin's death masks. So they had to be this direct link to his physical material body. 
Um, and um, all the pictures, all the drawings uh, by artists like Brodsky uh, had to be based on photographs, on a mm-hmm. certain number of approved photographs. <laughs> Again, an attempt, at least an attempt, to link to the actual physicality. To the material body and the same goes about the body itself when they preserved the body which was not an inevitable event it uh, they some of them wanted it some didn't but when they did uh, the body was kind of a combination of the real corpse of of Lenin which was not allowed to decompose at all right and because it was not allowed it was also constantly constructed and reconstructed with new materials it's impossible to say, it, it, it would be wrong rather to say that this body is uh, uh, not real, Lenin's body is simply a construct, as some people argue, because mm-hmm. it is real. And it's impossible to say that this is a real corpse either, because it is not allowed to undergo the fate of a real corpse by kind of manipulations which are attributed to it, to which it is subjected, which make it a little bit different from the body, and more and more so with time. So it's a combination of real body and the, what I call effigy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's all very interesting because it becomes then clear that this is indeed the, this sovereign figure, because the sovereign figure in different historical and cultural contexts around the world is always a combination of something which is uh, um, invest, which is the body of the real ruler and the body of an abstract ruler who survives the death of any concrete figure and it then gets uh, re-embodied in the figure of the next ruler, right? Yeah. Uh, just to articulate it maybe more clearly, the uh, sovereignty as a, the figure of the sovereign in the abstract survives the, the demise of any concrete person who occupies that position temporarily. Right, uh, each king, each president, each uh, ruler uh, dies, and then is replaced by the next one, and reoccupies that position. So there is this abstract figure of the sovereign, which is eternal, and there is also a concrete figure of the sovereign, which is uh, mortal. And so the figure of the sovereign always is a combination of the two. And the same is true about Lenin's body. Uh, you can actually see that duality being reflected in the body itself. Which is why I thought it's really interesting to actually write about this body from a new perspective. Because, you know, there are hundreds, literally hundreds of texts about Lenin's body. Political theory, uh, cultural studies, journalism. And no one ever analyzed what actually is going on to that body. They just look at it. They go to the mausoleum, they look at it, and then they write this symbolic analysis. (laughs) But I thought, you know what? You need to actually go to the lab and see what they do what they are allowed to do or not allowed to do to this body, how the science, allowed is not even the right word, how the science evolved and Mm -hmm. what kind of principles it follows and what kind of a body it is actually maintaining. Um, Because it it does add a lot of materials to the body, but not necessarily all kinds of materials and not necessarily to all kinds of parts of the body. And all of that really matters if you want to understand uh, the political role this body occupies. Right. And that doesn't necessarily have to be understood by the scientists. They, they, you know, they already work within the parameters of that scientific project, so they don't need to think about it politically. Of course. But the way the project got shaped was politically defined, and that's what I was trying to understand. Yeah. So it, it became kind of a prism through which I wanted to look at the Soviet history as a whole, that became a very interesting prism. Just like in the previous book, for me, the prism was 
the collapse is unexpected, and yet when it happens, everyone like, well, of course, how could it have been different? But then no one expected it until that moment. That's an interesting prism through which to look at the previous period. No, it's it's actually, it's incredible. I mean, it's actually an incredible opportunity uh, because, you know, I mean, because Lenin is, is interesting because not only is he this, you know, central figure in the Russian Revolution and just in, in, in the development of Russian history in general, but but he also wrote a lot, right? So he has this huge body of text that's that that can be quoted. And so, you know, like for instance, if I don't know, you can compare. You can you you brought up the the American you know American Revolution and the founding fathers. You know, they also wrote a lot. There were a lot of debates around, um, you know, what kind of country, uh, how to construct the country, on what foundation and what legal foundation it should be it should be built. And you know, in America, the founding fathers are you know again they're deified, but also what they wrote. And there's a lot of what they wrote is always, you know, again, weaponized or instrumentalized um, in whatever the current political debate is, right, or whatever, whatever the political fight is. And so so you can, like, look at the at sort of the dead body of their text, right, and how it's constantly being modified and, and, and taken out of context or sort of, like, played with, right? Um, mm-hmm. to, to, but then what, 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 what's amazing about Lenin is that not only does he have the texts that, you know, the same thing is done to his text, right, it, or was done to his text in the Soviet Union, but also there's almost like this mirror image of the body, you know, that's also the, the mm-hmm. same kind of thing is being done to it, you know, on, on some level. And so it's, a, yeah, it's such a perfect... Um, I mean, a much more exciting way of looking at Lenin and 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 just and, and the underpinning of, of yeah of this just through the, his body because his body is physical. It's also a very macabre kind of situation. I mean, you're literally you know um, dealing with a, a corpse, you know, um, and 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 and, uh, and so yeah, it's an it's an incredible opportunity, and I'm, and it's amazing that no one's you know no one's yeah done it before. No you. one's thought of this. Right. You know, it's like the most. It, it, in hindsight, it seems so obvious, but it, none of these things obviously seem obvious. So it's 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 a, such a perfect it's such a perfect way to look at it. I wouldn't necessarily say that no one thought about it before. Just to be fair to my colleagues, I think it's uh, what you suggested in your question earlier. It's indeed very difficult to actually get to this lab mm-hmm. because it's very closed, right? Yes, and especially you know in the late Soviet and post-Soviet period, it became very secretive. Um, and, uh, you know, when I started this project, I was told continuously by all sorts of contacts which I was getting uh, and was finding that you will never be able to talk to the scientists. They will just never, you know, sorry, it's impossible to, to, to do this. You know? But Why? I, I Why? guess to some extent, anth- anth- because they don't want to talk. <clears throat> they don't want to talk about their work. If I remember correctly, I think at some point some like Russian TV team got to them and then ridiculed them. Is that that? Well, that's partly that, yeah. I should then say, I should start a little bit earlier, mm-hmm. in the early Soviet period, uh, up until the 40s, so in the first 20 years, let's say 25 years of the lab, it wasn't so secretive. There were, in fact, um, articles written about the embalmers. They were national heroes. They were decorated <laughs> with all sorts of awards. Amazing. The, you know, the yeah. yeah, because they were, um, they were doing something important. And I should also say that all the major scientists in the lab uh, from the beginning until today, they are not simply employed in this lab. They also work in other institutes. They are famous anatomists, biochemists, surgeons, who have uh, all sorts of other projects uh, in which they're involved. And they work, uh, they head departments and institutes. So for them, the lab, to some extent, is a part-time occupation. 
um, the institute around the lab has some of the junior researchers who are only employed there, but mm -hmm. the main scientists who do this work, both practical and uh, research kind of work, they are actually not only lab scientists. And this is why uh, they um, were always much more of public figures. And they actually, you know, like for example, Professor Lepuhin, with whom I spoke a lot about this project eventually, who became like one of my main uh, entrance points into the lab. He uh, is, well, he died recently. He was known uh, for being the uh, kind of the person together with Petrovsky who uh, created the Soviet uh, system of kidney transplantation mm -hmm. uh, in the late 1960s, for, for which he was... Uh, you know, highly decorated, and it, it was an incredibly sophisticated procedure. He was a surgeon. And also he is known for detoxification work, you know, for people who get poisoned by different types of poison, and then uh, you, you, you can purify their blood and so forth. Very important work for all sorts of professionals, right? Mm -hmm. um, and also radiation disease. So he was actually involved in highly sophisticated medicine, and he invented a lot. And he ran very important projects. Uh, in addition to that, he also worked in the lab. Some of the work in the lab and those other projects became connected to each other, but most of the projects were not connected to the lab in any way. He was just doing both. But as uh, maybe jumping too fast, going back to the past again, mm -hmm. uh, from the beginning, all the major scientists were public figures. They were well known, partly because of their general work and partly because of their work in the lab. It was considered to be an important breakthrough of Soviet science. Uh, Zbarsky, one of the two original bombers, actually published a book called Lenin's Mausoleum, Mausoleum Lenina, where he explained the embalming procedure relatively in relatively uh, uh, exact detail. Not you know, not too much, but nevertheless, for the general public, it was much more than what we can find today. Mm -hmm. But then after the 50s, it all changed. Uh, and I can, maybe later, if you're interested, can talk about why that change happened. But so eventually it became much more close and secretive. Can I actually, can I just interrupt you for one second? Because I actually just, I have just an interesting point about the, the earlier openness of, about, you know, about mm -hmm. the, the process. And was it, was it tied to, you know, because obviously, you know, the, the Soviet Union, put a lot of weight behind, you know, technological progress and science and scientific achievement, right? This is a big, this is a, a big part of, 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 of Soviet, Soviet sort of, I don't know, ideology and, and celebration of, of what, it, what can be done um, under communism. And so was it connected to, because, you know, I would think that like, just if I didn't going into it and not knowing anything about it, I would think that, you know, because Lenin was ultimately deified and created into this, into this, into this kind of almost like godlike persona, um, you know that, like the the process around the the embalming and the preservation, right, the, uh, would be would be kind of held tightly even in the very beginning, um, because just to not sully, you know, the nature of this of this of this almost godlike figure, right? But it, but what you're saying is that it was actually much more open in the beginning, and people were, you know, there were there were articles in, in newspapers about all these techniques. So was it were these things connected? I mean, do you recall coming across that, um, in, you know, in in your research, whether or not like Look, we can even you know look look how great you know the Soviet sciences. We can even preserve the, this body you know indefinitely, and look at the technological achievements that we're making here. Was there any kind of rhetoric around that? Well, uh, I should actually answer both of your points here together, because you uh, asked about whether 
this openness, more relative openness, was connected to the celebration of the Soviet science under under the socialist system. And the other point was that Lenin was deified and the godlike figure, you said. So I would answer both of those together, and I would actually resist the second point. Mm-hmm. I don't think Lenin was deified. I don't think this reference to Lenin as a godlike figure is correct. I think this whole rhetoric about you know Leninism being a kind of a new religion, a communism being a new religion, there's a fair amount of political work written about it in those terms. I think it's completely wrong. That's my opinion. And um, if we do, I mean, we should actually acknowledge, of course, that uh, all modern political concepts are genealogically linked to religious concepts. You know, Carl Schmitt wrote about it. Uh, but that's true about all systems. It's true yeah. about the American system. It's true about the uh, liberal democracy more generally or about nationalism. So therefore, to somehow single out Leninism and say that this, you know, they created this God or this new Jesus, I think it's wrong. They didn't. 